Welcome to Adulting on the Spectrum. In this podcast, we want to highlight the real voices of autistic adults, not just inspirational stories, but people like us talking about their day-to-day life. Basically, we want to give a voice to a variety of autistic people. I'm Aileen Lamb, an autistic author and photographer, and I co-host this podcast with Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Eileen. Today, our guest is Austin Varco. Austin is a 23-year-old race car driver from San Diego, California. When he was diagnosed with level one autism at age 20, his purpose realigned to learning and understanding himself and act as a bridge for others understanding autism. Austin is using his racing career as a platform to educate and advocate for those who may not have a voice, but have things to say. Austin loves snowboarding, surfing, and being one with nature. He's a huge Larry David fan, loves everything music from Johnny Cash to Tool, big movie buff, went to USC for film production and transitioned to business for his degree. Welcome, Austin. Hey, thank you guys for having me. Thank you for coming. So we like to ask all of our guests uh, what identity language they prefer. Uh, We don't mean pronouns, although you can share those too. We mean uh, person with first, person with autism, on the spectrum, autistic. Uh, Do you have a preference? No preference. I kind of go by anything. Great. That's how we feel. So you were diagnosed with autism at age 20. Uh, can you take us uh, through that journey? What made you want to get assessed and how was that process, all of that? So I was, uh, as, a, as a baby, I was showing, or really, really young, I was showing some signs of autism uh, that my parents knew about right off the bat. Um, and there, I, as far as I understand it, there were some conversations that, um, that I should get a diagnosis. I remember a, a doctor at one point was saying that. Um, and uh, they ended up not pursuing that um, and kind of opting for um, just a different form of treatment. So my, my parents were very, um, not gonna say anti-label, but I think that they thought that more of a burden than a, than a helping tool. Um, and I, you know, as I've grown up, I've, I've kind of realized the benefit of that, um, especially because I think that there were things that maybe I wouldn't have done or chased after um, if I, if I, thought from a really young age that I was different in, in maybe negative ways, um, or at least that's how I would have perceived it. And so um, as an adult, I, kinda, I definitely see the benefit of how they went about it. But um, you know, when, I, when I was 20 and kind of decided to go figure myself out, um, that was after years and years of just of, you know, deep depression and, and just not getting anything from anybody. And so it was just a it was a hard time in my life, the five or six years before that. So my entire adolescence was rough, um, and I kind of never understood why until um, until I got the diagnosis. Uh, that made a lot of sense, especially when I started looking into what it actually was, because I didn't know. When I, when I was diagnosed with autism, it was one of those things where um, I had been sort of researching what some of the symptoms were, and, and a lot of it aligned with what I already had. Right, I was diagnosed before that with social anxiety disorder. Um, social anxiety disorder and ADHD and depression. And so that's kind of, we were talking about the puzzle piece. That was kind of the, for me, I had these, all these different pieces, but they didn't fit in the right shape. Um, and so when I, when I got diagnosed, it was a, several days of testing and, and they talked to my friends and my parents and um, filled out all kinds of stuff. And they tested me for everything in the book. And uh, when I finally got it, I was a little bit shocked to be honest. I, I mean, I didn't really know what to think because it made a lot of sense, but at the same time, um, 
I had only ever heard of the stereotypes and I didn't feel like I fit the stereotype. Um, and, and then I learned that, you know, everybody's case is different and you've met one person with autism, right? That's what they say. Well, I think that has to be really true. Um, and I think it was right then when I, when I started having access to the tools that I think I should have had access to as a kid. I think that's, that's the only thing I would change. Maybe um, growing, out, growing up without a label was great, but I also didn't have access to um, the right kinds of therapy. I didn't have access to the right kinds of tools that I would have needed to do better in school and that kind of stuff. And so I think had I had access to those a little bit earlier, even without a diagnosis, um, I may have had a, a better growing up, um, but it's just, yeah, you live and you learn. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what specifically in getting an official diagnosis, how that helped you afterwards? Sure. Yeah. Um, Maybe some like specific examples too. I think having an official diagnosis. Um, so if I didn't go after the official diagnosis, I don't think I ever would have um, been concrete in my understanding of what, what I was dealing with. And so because of that, I don't think I ever would have gotten the same help that I got after getting a diagnosis. So that would be the first thing. The second thing was I found a huge sense of community when I was diagnosed. I, for kind of the first time in my life, I felt like I belonged with a group of people. Um, and that really showed last year at the Autism Speaks Walk, because that was just like, it was like 5,000 people that I know are kind of like me. Um, and I, I felt like I fit in somewhere, which was really cool. I love that. You know, I think that was the biggest thing after my diagnosis, too. I always felt like something was wrong with me, that I didn't belong. And I had one regret when I was diagnosed is that it didn't happen when I was a child, because it would have helped me so much to understand why I was different, why kids were like making fun of me and all of that that I didn't understand. So I can uh, relate to, uh, to what you were saying. Um, what would you say your biggest struggles with autism are and also any strengths, anything positive that come with your diagnosis? <laughs> I, f I feel like that it's one of those things where you hear these stories about people who have crazy strength because of it and like really good with numbers or, or something really specific. I think I have relative strengths in things like if I get hyper focused on something, I can work on it for like two days straight and I don't have to worry about eating or drinking or anything. And sometimes that's nice. But then the flip side of that is just the, the burnout. I think I have really have a problem with that where I'll get hung up on something and kind of dedicate every second to it. And then I just it just gets thrown away and I feel sick. Like it's just it's just something that I deal with with not every week, but but kind of all the time, I'll get really into something specific and then it just doesn't exist anymore. And I move on to the next thing. And that's an exhausting process because I'll go several days completely demotivated when I give up on that. Uh, that's a problem. Yeah, so most people don't expect a race car driver to have sensory issues because it's a pretty sensory intensive sport. Um, but one thing that I've found about myself, and I, I've known this my whole life, but one thing that, that was was really abundantly clear after I got my diagnosis and learning about sensory problems was things that you would normally expect me to have a sensory problem with, I don't. So like I can go to massive parties and be with a thousand people because there's like a, for me, it, I need that. Like I have, there's a certain threshold of sensory that I need to have in my life. So being in a race car satisfies that. And I like, you just 
constant barrage of everything all at once. And then I get really hung over from it the next couple of days. Like I just exhausted, don't want to leave. I have to be in a dark space, like all that. It's just something I've noticed. But then on the flip side, if I'm in a restaurant with like two couples and it's just like us three people in that building, um, that's extremely overwhelming for me. Being in a space where I can hear five or six different conversations all at once, um, classrooms, overwhelming, that kind of stuff. It's, it's, a, it's just something I've noticed about myself. And those are the, day, the days that I have to sit in a place that's like kind of quiet, but not entirely quiet are the days that I'm like just burned out and, and kind of don't want to deal with anybody or anything. I, uh, yeah, didn't, never met an autistic person who was fine with parties. I mean, I'm like the opposite. I could not be uh, like among a lot of people. It's funny because you say you have social anxiety. So I feel like parties, social anxiety, that would be hell. I feel like for, from what I've learned about it is it's more about having one thing to focus on. So I find that like the anxiety kind of goes away when I can focus on one thing. So if I'm in a big party with a lot of people, chances are there's live music or something. And so I'm focusing on just the one source, just the music, just the whatever. And I become more like in my own space. Whereas if I were at, at a, um, a less crowded party per se, um, where there's all these conversations happening and that's kind of the primary thing, that's where I start to get pretty in my own head and, and um, fall apart more or less. Um, and so that, that's something I've learned about myself. I also have, um, I've always been really sensitive to like texture and food. And so I have like on my, my weekly food list of stuff that I eat, there's like four things. Like well, I, I, I survive only on chicken nuggets, cereal, a couple different fruits and maybe a bowl of ice cream, anything else. And I'm like, I won't touch it. It takes a lot of will to go out and chase those things. Speaking of uh, will and chasing things, um, can you share some tools that have helped with your executive functioning? That was the big one for me was when I had tools to, to function daily, that was a, that was a huge um, improvement in my life. And the tools that I use, um, I'm still figuring it out every day. Um, and I'm working at it all the time. I have an occupational therapist now, which I didn't have before which made a really big difference in my life because she actually gives me action steps. And I, I didn't really have like, um, there wasn't a lot emotionally I was working through and at least in the last few years. Um, and I didn't realize how much of my mental well-being stemmed from like all the stuff you don't think about. And I think that was a big thing. So for me, having an OT was, was a big change in my life. Um, and then she's given me a ton of tools like, um, ways that I calendar and schedule. Um, I, I have a problem double booking as, as you guys might have seen. Um, and so I'm still working at it, but I'm way better than I used to be in terms of like how I reach out to people and how I, um, interact with my schedule and all those things. Um, like I have three different calendars. I have a system of calendars that I use and varying in importance. So like my big calendar, I see big events where I'm going to be different places. And then like, that's different race weekends. And then you shrink it down to a weekly calendar where I start to block out my time. 
and then you have your daily calendar. And I'm sort of, phase, I used to be really stringent on how I set up my day on the daily and I'm starting to kind of throw that away and think more big picture. And that's made a big difference in, in, in my ability to communicate with other people and block my time. So Austin, I, uh, I want to talk a little bit about racing. I, uh, I grew up in France, as you can hear from my accent, and uh, F1 is big there, and I watch with my dad, and it was just, you know, I feel like in Europe in general, it's a, it's a big thing. And then I moved to America, and it seemed like pretty much nobody was into F1 until that Netflix show, Drive to Survive. Um, so do you want to tell people a little bit, I mean, the difference between like what you do and F1 and, you know, the different type of uh, racing there is out there? Yeah. So I do, um, I do sports car racing. So this would be, um, there's a lot of different types of sports car racing. Um, you know, you can have your GTs. Those are like your Ferraris and your Lamborghinis with big wings and, um, closed cockpits. And then it can, that can go all the way down to sports car racing can bump up against stock car racing, which is like NASCAR, right? So you have these big burly muscle cars, um, but still closed cockpit, still have a roll cage, all the nine yards. Um, and then you've got, and those race on circuits like F1. So it's right and left turns, uh, but NASCAR stock cars started on ovals. So primarily NASCAR is ovals and then they have some road courses shoved in there. So they race on some of the F1 circuits. Um, and then you've got open wheel cars and that's your F1, your IndyCar. Um, and that's the open cockpit, you know, no fenders, that kind of stuff. So I race sports cars. Um, and like I said, it bumps right up against stock cars. So the series I race in sees a lot of people moving up to professional stock cars like NASCAR. Uh, they see people also moving up to sports car racing because it's kind of the same skill sets, that your um, whether you're on an oval or a road course. Um, but one thing I want to, uh, one thing I want to mention is about the Netflix documentary, um, Drive to Survive. If you haven't seen it, it's an awesome show. Uh, it does a great job of kind of showing what the inner workings of, of motorsport look like. But what I want to say about that is a, a rising tide raises all ships and that documentary did a world of good for the sport, whether you could make an argument that it's not entirely realistic and there's some drama dramatization of how they tell the story, but um, the boom in, in racing and the interest in racing, not just F1 has been massive, especially in the US and we needed it as an industry, we needed that to survive. So that was, that was a great uh, step for the industry. At what age did you start racing? And um, not even just racing, there's a lot of people with autism who uh, don't even learn to drive until later. Do you think it's ever too late to learn to drive or to, did you see that one woman? I think she passed her test after like, you know, a thousand failed attempts or something. Um, so. That's like uh, SpongeBob. Yeah. Finally passed his driving test. Um, so I, I was fortunate to grow up in a family that uh, raced amateur sports car racing, um, which is where I got my start. Um, and so I grew up around it my whole life. I was kind of, otherwise I maybe never would have found it. I mean, it's racing. It's not something that you like, it's not like baseball or football where you can just go to a field and you see it getting played all the time. 
race thing, you have to kind of go out, at least in America, you have to go two hours out of the city to find a racetrack. Um, and then maybe you can watch some racing. And it's not real common on TV other than NASCAR or IndyCar. So uh, I was fortunate. I was at the racetrack almost every weekend when I was a kid. They put me in a go-kart when I was four. Um, and I was competing go-karting by the time I was seven. So I, I had a lot of years in a go-kart before I ever hopped behind the wheel of an actual car. Um, and actually the, the first time I drove a car was in a high performance setting. So I wasn't even on a public road. I was on a track um, before I even got my driver's license. So I had a lot of experience. I know that if, if I ever have kids one day, I'm definitely going to stick them in a go-kart before they ever get behind the wheel of an actual car. Because I think like one thing that, you know, you can also make a conversation about autism with is spatial understanding and, um, and then also the sensory effect of it, right? Because you're, I remember the first time I drove anything and then every time I've stepped up to whatever's next, it's entirely overwhelming. So you go from one car that you're really used to and then you drive another car that maybe, maybe it's even slower than the other car, but because it's a new setting and you're surrounded by new stuff, that's pretty overwhelming. Um, and so I think that everyone, I think that it's something everybody could learn um, with enough practice, but it, it is pretty overwhelming for most people, I think. Even, even people without autism, you hear like my, my girlfriend, she's terrified to drive. So, so I don't, I think it's just, it's a human thing to be scared of piloting a 4,000 pound piece of metal at four times the speed that we can walk or run. And I think that's a perfectly natural feeling. Yeah, and you guys are in LA, right? Or in uh, California where like the highways are like insane and there's a lot of traffic. So I'm sure it's even harder. Yeah, and I, I find a lot of, I think, <laughs> it's probably safer driving on a racetrack than it is driving on the 405. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of traveling, uh, you do a lot of traveling out of a car too, right? Because uh, with your, your racing, um, weren't you yeah. in UK, uh, recently? Like, is this hard to travel a lot? Like, do you have any copying strategies, anxiety? What? I'm fortunate that I... I, I living this life works for me because I always have to be doing something. I'm, I'm terrible at just being, um, I don't know what that comes from, but I have to always be moving. I'm a lot happier when I'm, when I'm in a new place all the time, I need that kind of stimulation. So, um, for me it works, but what does throw me off is when I get to that new place, I'm usually off by like a day. Like I need a day to kind of, adapt and figure out where I am, even if it's in the same time zone. Um, and so I've kind of learned to adjust to that. So like, I, I have certain things that I always bring with me to those places. So I, for example, I always sleep on the same pillow. I bring that pillow everywhere. And so whether I'm in my bed at home or sleeping on a hotel bed in Ohio or whatever it is, I'm always, I always kind of rooted with the same stuff. Um, so I think variables like that, that if you can find something that kind of cements you to being home, your home is always moving, which is, which is nice. Um, I love to drive. So traveling is not really a problem. 
so I can do a six hour drive or whatever. And to me, that's just like me time. Um, but as far as traveling around, yeah, I, I think I like it a lot. We'll see if I say that at the end of this year, cause I have 30 some odd race weekends. So <laughs> I might be a little burnt out at the end of it. Is it like a championship and kind of like in, in F1 and is the point system the same? Like, how is that different? Yeah, uh, it's, it's exactly the same. Um, so, you know, your race finishes are important all season. Um, in the series I race in, you have a, a throwaway. So you have one race that if you really botch it or you get in a crash or the car does something wrong, you can kind of move on to the next one. Um, but if you have two weekends like that, it sets you back pretty far. Um, so there's definitely some attrition in terms of how you have to run kind of a perfect season to win a championship. Uh, but, but yeah, so I'm running two championships, um, uh, three, three championships this season. So it's, it's nine weekends per pretty much. Jeez. Um, but, and all over the country. So this weekend I'm in Ohio I'm racing with uh, world racing league, which is endurance racing. So that's eight hours a day, two days. Um, I drive like a two hour stint in that. And then, um, the more local racing, and this is, this is more what I, um, what I emphasize and in, in how I do my awareness. Like for example, um, the series I run is called spec Miata and it's a, um, the spec series. So all the cars are identical, which means that, um, different from F1, which means that all the drivers have an equal chance of winning hypothetically. Um, so it comes down to the driver who's driving and spec Miata is arguably the most competitive class in the U S for this type of racing. And so, um, I'm fortunate to be backed by, um, by some sponsorship that, that helps me, um, compete in these races. They also, I work with them, uh, to raise awareness for autism and, and kind of, um, educate through racing. And so, uh, the company I work with now is special needs coffee and they, um, they're based in LA and they do, um, we can get that set up and they, um, they are entirely employing um, autistic individuals. Um, so they're a mobile coffee stand. Um, the owners are awesome. They own, uh, an ABA company as well. And so they're heavily involved in the space. Um, but they use it as an opportunity to employ autistic people and allow them to kind of have a positive impact on that community. So they support me as well, which is, which is awesome. And I can't think of a better brand to represent in, in racing. Um, my goal is NASCAR, and so I'd love to take a company like that to that high level. Wow. And between us, I think we're looking at maybe next year having that kind of opportunity. So Ooh. I'm stoked. That's exciting. Well, I'm rooting for you. And uh, we can give them a shout out uh, when we post the episode, if they have Instagram or uh, just send that would be cool. information. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I love that, that you're doing that. Yeah. Yeah, they they're they're awesome and um i run a program called um called race for autism um which i work with local charities most recently i worked with current autism network which is based uh, they're about 30 minutes out of one of the racetracks that is on our calendar uh in bakersfield so this is a local charity and last year we brought out um 100 families to the racetrack 
and they got to put like stickers on my race car. They got to sit in it and take pictures. Um, and I was signing autographs. It was really, really cool. And that event, um, that event got some press and then Autism Speaks invited me to host the same event at their walk. And so we kind of did it a second time there, which was really neat. And now that program's evolved. And our first event this year is gonna be at the end of April for Autism Awareness Month, um, also with Kern Autism Network. And it's way bigger now. So now it's not just me, there's 10 other drivers participating with different types of cars. Um, we've got like a big barbecue and um, they can still decorate my car with the stickers <laughs> and they can write on it. Um, they get autographs from all these different drivers. Um, there's a simulator challenge at this one. So I'm bringing out my racing sim and they'll get to compete against my lap and the That's winner gets some free merch, um, all kinds of stuff. So I'm really excited and that's, that's taking a, a lot of work to set up, but it's hundred percent worth it. Do you do iRacing? I do. And it's, it's an excellent practice tool. I think like if you can get really good on a sim, you'll be really fast in reality, um, which I think is, is a great thing for racing because you're leveling the playing field because almost anyone can afford a basic simulator. I mean, you can, you can get a wheel and pedals for $75, strap it to an office chair, get a bare bones PC for 400 bucks and you're racing. And I think that's unheard of because previously racing, you had to, like me, you had to be connected to it or yeah. um, just find yourself in the perfect situation to, to do it. Yeah, that, that's what you hear a lot about racing. The complaint is that it's like only for rich people. You know, you have to be born into it to make it, you know. It's yep. people like uh, Ocon in F1, like most of them were like yeah. born into it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what's awesome about sim racing is it levels the playing field because you're starting to see these people who they never grew up with this. They've never been karting and yet they're just, awesome on the simulator and that has given them really good opportunities to go drive actual cars um, so that's i think it's great for the sport um, it's also bringing a lot of people into amateur racing which is great because eventually those amateur racers find sponsorship and they can go and do the pro stuff so yeah really awesome. good okay i'm going to ask you some quick fire questions now uh basically just uh some quick questions and you tell me the first answer that comes to your mind okay yeah ready what is your favorite uh f1 team from this year and your favorite driver uh i'm gonna go charles leclerc ferrari hey me too nice nice what's your current car current car <laughs> i have a 2012 uh toyota prius c Oh. Not what you expected, huh? <laughs> What's your dream car? I'm going to go with a uh, also a Ferrari, Ferrari 328 GTB. What's your favorite movie? Ooh, Almost Famous. Is glow in the dark a color? Like this, like this, if you can see it here. Like that's glow in the dark. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I'm go. gonna, yeah, it's I'm gonna, color. I'm gonna go with yes. That's that's a color. Glow in the dark is definitely a color. Thank you. Mm. Appreciate awesome. it. <laughs> Andrew thinks it's a color, and I don't think so. 
that's why we ask all our guests to settle this. Um, where can people find you on uh, social media? And uh, you can tell us about the, you know, your sponsor and all of that too. Yeah, um, you can find me at uh, austinbarco.com or at austinbarco. Uh, you can find my, my program, Race for Autism, at raceforautism.com. Um, and then got to plug the sponsors like a racing driver. So um, thank, thankful for uh, Special Needs Coffee, at Special Needs Coffee, um, uh, for, for helping me out and allowing me to do what I love to do. And then uh, additionally, Atoll Vodka, which is based in Florida, and they donate a lot of their proceeds to Autism Charity. So I've uh, got to say thank you to them. But um, yeah, that's that's where you can find us. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. I mean, I love uh, talking racing and stuff. So it was really- I thought you were going to say you love vodka. I'm like, yeah, that too. <laughs> and vodka. <laughs> and coffee. And vodka. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank thank you uh, for joining us, and uh, hopefully we'll see you in a NASCAR one of these days. <laughs>